Wilhelm! Yeah, I'll just fill my pipe. Kill them. Kill them both. We're missing Antiques Roadshow. Aren't you ever dramatizing this situation? We're interrupting this program to bring you the most exciting piece of news that's happened since the war. Like magic, an invisible chain of sound once more circles the planet. Anything can happen in the next hour. Who else has electricity streaming from his eyeballs and from his fingers? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast. Paleo Cinema Podcast looks at movies between 1895 and 1990. We cover all mainstream and genre films, books, TV and whatever else Terry gets obsessed about. The email address is cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U at gmail.com. The new voicemail number is 206-350-5440. Or you can leave messages on Skype at Paleo Cinema. All lowercase and no dash. This podcast may include swearing and adult content, so if you hear anything you don't understand, just fucking Google it. Hi, and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 67. Uh, My name's Terry Frost, and this time around I'm doing yet another spy movie and also a very good British thriller from 1950. Uh, How is everybody? It is 2011, and no, nobody has bought me a jetpack yet, though there is one going to be on sale soon. For about $100,000, apparently, a New Zealand company is making jetpacks, so we are definitely living in the future. It's just not evenly distributed yet, as William Gibson once said. Uh, How are people? At the moment here, it is very hot. It's around 95 old school, about 35 um, centigrade. So I've got the air conditioning on. Jill the kitten is around somewhere in this end of the house having a sleep uh she's going very well by the way the the new kitten she's growing enormously she's come to uh an agreement with jack the cat which means that if she gets too obnoxious he swats her on the head with his paw but um yeah we're, we're doing fine here we're planning a holiday in march we're going to darwin for a week then we're going to come back and then we're going to drive up to broken hill way out into mad max territory and uh, cruise into South Australia and do another week cruising around doing that. As I haven't had a holiday in any real sense of the word in three years, very much looking forward to that. I'm going to have a couple of podcasts up my sleeve by that stage, so you guys aren't going to miss out on hearing my ugly voice during that period of time that uh, Sal and I are heading to, firstly to places tropical and then to the deepest Australian desert so we we're having a lot of fun planning that holiday uh both of us have have been waiting for it for a long time and we plan to enjoy the fuck out of it so what have I been watching not a hell of a lot for I really have decided to write down the movies I'm watching this time I did see Jonah Hex now 
everybody I know, Zom included, have said it's shit, and I can't really disagree with them. I think that uh, Josh Brolin's a fine actor. I think John Malkovich is a fine actor. What I don't think is that it's a good movie. A lot of it's very dark, um, confusing, and stupid. Uh, the script needed about to be worked over about two or three more times, and the director needed to be sent off to do some music videos for a while or whatever the fuck he does but um no it's a lot of money wasted that one so i don't recommend it i did see uh i re-watched uh 1978 film that people have been talking about recently the silent partner with elliot gould and christopher Plummer in it and yes it is a fucking kick-ass movie it's also got Susanna york in it and she's very lovely lady and a fine actress um it's about a bank teller who, um, as he's about to basically steal money from his own bank, the bank's robbed by a guy dressed up as Santa Claus, and the guy dressed up as Santa Claus is a serious nutcase. I'm not going to do any spoilers on that, but it's a Canadian movie. It's a very good Canadian movie, and uh, a very fine cat-and-mouse kind of thriller. So if you haven't checked that one out, please do. Uh, I did see a Hammer movie, so enjoyed. I always enjoy Hammer movies, good, bad, or indifferent. This one was Vampire Circus, um, and one from the 1970s. Uh, it's kind of in the tradition of the classic Hammer vampire movies, but it's got a couple of other... It's just at the start of that, that part of Hammer's career, well, you know, the Hammer Studios career, I suppose, where nudity was coming in, uh, which is always welcome. Female nudity, and to be fair to women, male nudity, never a problem in films. Uh, I always find that if the movie's flagging a bit, if you chuck in and, um, some attractive nudity, then it will keep people going until the next plot point in the film. So that was a lot of fun too. Uh, it's actually quite a dark film in places. There's some very... Um, startling little bits in it. It's a little bit of an underrated one. Not a fantastic movie. Uh, it's got Thorley Walters in it and a few other people, Adrian Corey. Nobody really big but fine English actors in it. Uh, and uh, if you haven't checked it out, please do. It's uh, a good representative of that period of Hammer's arc, if you if you know what I mean. And uh, it's it's not as stupid as something like Dracula AD 1972, where they tried to update Christopher Lee's Dracula into Swinging London 1972. Had it done that in 1968, 67 even, uh, it might have worked. But 72, things were kind of going a bit disco-y. And uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that the movie was made about six years too late. Anyway, um, what else have I seen? I did see a um, kind of tits and ass British movie, which is incredibly light and silly and makes no sense at all. It's based on a newspaper comic strip. It's called Tiffany Jones from about the mid-1970s and starred Anuska Hempel as the titular character in more senses than one. Um, it's also got Eric Pullman in it, a kind of uh, fat character actor you might remember from the 1960s as the voice of Blofeld in the very early James Bond films. And also he did a lot of uh, film roles in the 50s and 60s. This is not one of his best pieces of work, where he plays an elderly um, Eastern European dictator infatuated with a 22-year-old chick. Not not a, a great film at all. But the um, the standout film that I have seen so far in 2011 is Red. I did see Red. Now... 
This is an action film. This is not meant to be taken at all seriously. It's based on a um, graphic novel written by Warren Ellis, so it's got a good pedigree there. It stars Bruce Willis and John Malkovich and Morgan Freeman and um, uh, Carl Urban and, of course, Helen Mirren firing not only submachine guns but full-on machine guns. And it's a lot of fun. It's... um, a piss take it's it's got some a great ensemble in it it's got some terrific action sequences and it's got julian mcmahon playing uh, the vice president of the united states and the plastic surgery that guy's had has not served him well but uh if you haven't seen it check it out it's a good kind of you know you sit down you get your pork scratchings and your popcorn you get a beer you watch it on dvd and just enjoy the fuck out of it not meant to be taken seriously, but it's a good, honest action film which doesn't have too much shaky cam, fast cut bullshit in it. So, leaving that aside, I'm going to talk about the two films I'm doing this time around. I've only just finished re watching the second one, but the first one is a favourite, and I've actually talked about it in the podcast a couple of times recently. It's uh, the 1972 spy movie directed by Peter Collinson called Innocent Bystanders. Now, you've got to remember Peter Collinson, he directed the original and best Italian job. His pedigree is in place, as far as I'm concerned, based on that alone. Um, it, the movie stars one of the uh, alternative Magnificent Seven that I set up in Palio Cinema a couple of years ago, Sir Stanley Baker, playing a, um, a slightly washed-up British secret agent called John Craig. It also stars Donald Pleasance as his um, head of department, Looms. It's got Dana Andrews starring as a um, US security guy. It has Darren Nesbitt in it as one of the other secret agents in it. Sue Lloyd's in it as another secret agent. It has Warren Mitchell and it has Geraldine Chapman as the innocent bystander in a sense. Uh, and the other film I'm going to talk about is Seven Days to Noon from 1950. It was directed and written by the Bolting Brothers, a uh, British film from 1950. And it's um, about a nuclear scientist who goes off the rails, has a crisis of consciousness, and steals a suitcase nuke and threatens to let it off in the centre of London unless British nuclear weapon research ceases. So that's quite an interesting film. It's not incredibly well-known, but it is um, really, really interesting. And and, um, I'll talk about that in just a little bit. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a bit of a break. I'm going to play some annoying music, and we'll get back. And uh, I think I'll do Seven Days to Noon first, because Innocent Bystanders is a guilty pleasure in a movie that I like a lot. And... um, so, you know, grab a drink and I'll play you. Yep, I'm going to do one of my favourite guilty pleasure songs. Well, songs in a sense. Which is the Nutty Squirrels from the early 1960s doing one of their scats um, chipmunk tracks. Ding dong.
That's another guilty pleasure, that one. Um, yeah, I've got to mention something else, too, movie-related. Uh, in the very first Paleo Cinema podcast, back when dinosaurs ruled the Earth, uh, I talked about The Bad, The Beautiful, one of my favourite movies, uh, directed by Vincent Millis, starring Kirk Douglas and Lana Turner. I have uh, been noodling around on eBay, and I picked up an Australian 1950s day bill poster of the bad and the beautiful i'll put up um a picture of it once i've got it on uh the website and also on facebook for people to have a look at but um i'm quite pleased about that i don't do a lot of collectible kind of stuff because mostly because of budgetary limitations but uh, i managed to pick up this one i talked to sal and said listen can we afford this yeah it costs us a little bit but um i'm very very pleased that i've got it so i'm feeling quite squee about that one Anyway, on to Seven Days to Noon, and uh, you've got to check out this movie. I'll give you a little bit of a pricey on it. It's from 1950, as I said. It's a kind of British thriller film directed by John and Roy Bolting. Uh, it won the Academy Award for Best Story, oddly enough, and uh, it's one of those Academy Award-winning films that nobody ever talks about. Particularly, It was pretty rare for a British film to get an Oscar in those days, too. So, basically, I'll give you a little praise here, or paraphrase from Wikipedia. The film is set in the early 1950s. The British Prime Minister has sent a letter by Professor Willingdon, played by an actor called Barry Jones, who works at Britain's Atomic Weapons Development Facility, from which he has surreptitiously taken a nuclear warhead. It's a very explicit, in a very explicit threat that Willingdon will destroy the centre of London in a week's time at noon, unless the British government declares that it is to stop all stockpiling of nuclear warheads. Detective Superintendent Folland, played by Andre Morell, of Scotland Yard Special Branch, is charged with tracking down Willingdon and stopping him. So that's basically the setup of the film. Uh, it's in lovely black and white. Very, uh, If you look around it and find it, I believe it may be available on DVD. I didn't get it on DVD. I found it by another means. But um, if it, uh, if I see it on DVD and it comes up fairly cheaply, I may even upgrade to that. It's a fine little thriller. Um, now, Willington, Willington is, a, is a very kind of meek character. Uh, you might remember the actor who played him, Barry Jones. He was actually in the movie version of Brigadoon in uh, the mid-1950s, I think about 1955, 1956, as I recall. He was the guy in Brigadoon. Uh, let me just see which year was Brigadoon in. Yeah, this sounds good. 1954, I was wrong. He played Mr. Lundy, the, um, the kind older guy who lived in Brigadoon and who woke up to uh, let Gene Kelly back into Brigadoon at the end of the film. And, and he's playing a very different role there than he is in this one. Um, Professor Willingdon is kind of a bald, at the start of the film, moustached scientist. He's, he's got a, a rumpled old raincoat. Um, a hat and uh, he's, he's in, in maybe around 60 years old uh, very kind of meek and mild sort of character uh, he's a religious person as well one of his best friends is a local vicar uh, who he has long philosophical conversations about um, life and, and you know, what would you do if you're you found out that the work you've spent your life doing is being used for an evil purpose. He was kind of posing these philosophical questions to the vicar as as it comes out in the film. 
And the implication there is that um, the ministry in charge of this really isn't looking after the people that are developing these weapons for them. There, there's no kind of psychological counselling, there's no support structure there. They just assume these people are going to make these incredibly deadly weapons with no emotional blowback. So there's a little bit of an implication about that. Now, the the focal point of the of the film really is um, Detective Superintendent Fallen, played by Andre Morel. You might recall Andre Morel, a very fine character actor, uh, who has appeared in a number of Hammer films as well. He was in the um, he played Doctor Watson in the Hammer production of Hand of the Baskervilles in 1959. He was in he played Quatermass in the BBC television serial Quatermass in the Pit. He was in Bridge on the River Kwai and in Ben Hur as well. And uh, if you've got that recent Hammer um, suspense box set of um, movies, you might remember that he was in a very cool and smaller um, film called Cash on Demand, I believe it is. Just give me a moment, I'll double-check that name. Having a bit of a vague day. Cash on Demand, yep, 1961, which also starred Peter Cushing as a, a bank president. So, Andre Morel, got a lot of time for him as an actor. Um, he's, he's now dead, of course. His last film was The First Great Train Robbery, the one with Sean Connery in it. Uh, I think it was directed by Michael Crichton in 1979. But I uh, always, always liked Andre Morel. I think he's got a, a, a presence and a kind of gravitas that, that served him well in a number of roles. He was also spent... He was in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers in um, in the 1940s during World War Two as well, and he left the service attaining the rank of major. So he's got that kind of military background as well, which kind of served him incredibly finely. Um, in a, he was an actor before the war, and he became he went on with the the acting career after the war as well. But Andre Morel, um, I have a lot of goodwill towards him as an actor. I've talked about that before. How certain actors you you do like and you have goodwill towards. Now, that's that's the setup of the movie. Uh, there are a number of really good character actors in this as well. You might see in one scene in a pub, Jeffrey Keane, who um, before. Judy Dench took over, was one of the actors who played M in the later um, James Bond films. So he's in there, a much younger actor. Victor Madden's in there, another fine English actor in there as well. You'll even see Joss Ackland, who you might remember played the villain in both Bill and Ted movies. Uh, He's a young policeman in uh, a police station scene in this one with a full head of hair which I've never seen him in any other film with a full head of hair so there um, yes yeah, so it's a kind of ensemble of, of cool British actors in a sense Joan Hickson who went on to have a long career playing Miss Marple stars as um, well stars features as uh, a lady running a um, bed and breakfast kind of place and she has a number of cats so she's got one of those sort of smaller eccentric roles and she's one of the people with whom Professor Willingdon finds sanctuary uh, while he's on the run from the authorities. Now one of the other characters in this who is a really interesting character played by an actress called Olive Sloan is Goldie who's a um, an ageing theatre actress and the implications are that she's, you know, she's she's a lady of a certain age. She's in her fifties. She's um, very fond of of the tipple. 
and there is an implication as she takes the professor in um, for the night that she's kind of dabbles in in some occasional prostitution as well and she becomes a kind of every person in London as um, the the tension ratches up and as the deadline counts down um, on Professor Walling, uh, Professor Willingdon's threat to blow up the centre of London. So they're the, they're the people involved in it, and they're all very fine, and they they bring a reality to the film that the Bolting brothers are known to um, do in a number of their different films. And I'll give you a little bit of an idea about the Bolting brothers' history. Uh, they were identical twin brothers which is really interesting too. You don't get many of those. Um, I'll give you a little bit of an idea about their filmography, the films that these two have been involved with. Um, Bright and Rock, the 1947 one with Richard Attenborough, the crime film. A film I just... I did see another film during the month. Uh, it's called The Magic Box. It's about a, um, a real-life character called um, Freeze Green who was one of the people who developed... Uh, William Freeze Green, who was one of the people who developed the motion picture camera in the 19th century. Uh, he's played by Robert Donat in it. Uh, it's an interesting little film. It was done for the Festival of Britain in um, 1951. So uh, that's just a side thing. So uh, he directed that as well. I'm All Right, Jack and Heavens Above, two Peter Sellers comedies. Lucky Jim, uh, let me see what I've got here. Carton Brown of the Foreign Office, Twisted Nerve, Roy Bolting directed Twisted Nerve in 1968. There's a Girl in My Soup, another Peter Sellers movie. Soft Beds and Hard Battles, those sort of things. But uh, Twisted Nerve, you might remember, is the one with um, Hayley Mills and Billy Whitelaw, Frank Finlay in it, with the Bernard Herman music, which was co-opted by quentin tarantino for kill bill it's the bit where l driver comes in in the nurse's uniform that's music from twisted nerve so they've they've got a long career from basically the beginning of the 1940s well into the 1970s of making interesting english films roy bolting also directed a movie that i really like and i may do for a podcast at some stage which is a kind of rehash of the most dangerous game called Run for the Sun starring Richard Widmark, Trevor Howard and Jane Greer from 1956 really interesting little um, Richard Widmark actioner from the 1950s which I, I really like and I saw years and years ago and remembered as you do with these sort of things but that's basically the people who are involved in the film now I'm going to tell you why I like it I've, got a, I've decided that I've got a kind of structure when I talk about movies a little better than I have been. And here's the thing, three things I'm going to do. First off, I'll tell you what the movie is and uh, give you the praise of it. Then I'll talk about who's involved in it and, and what they've done and that kind of thing. Then I'm going to go to stage three, which is why I like the film. So, oh, before I do, one of the other things I found out is that Andre Morel's character, Superintendent Folland, appeared in another film a couple of years later done by the Bolting Brothers called High Treason, which is about communist spies um, doing some sabotage in England. I've just got a copy of that, but I haven't had time to watch it yet, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Maybe that's going to be my sit-back-after-the-podcast movie this time around, a movie called High Treason from the 19. I'll give you the date of it anyway. Just be a moment while I tick, click through on this. Can you hear sirens in the background? Because I can. I hope it's not a fire or anything nearby. 
The weather is very windy and very hot out here at the moment. But uh, yeah, Pied Treason 1951. So it was played a year after Seven Days to Noon. So they, they've got a kind of a series of two happening here. So back to why I like this film. Apart from the actors, of course, and the and the ensemble they put together for this, it's filmed in a lovely documentary way. This title sequence is a view out of the side window of a train heading into London, and the titles kind of slide past the window like a almost like an advertising sign. They're kind of staggered slightly and they slide past. We're giving this sense of action about. The, the titles and there's um, music by John Addison who went on to have a long career as um, a film composer right up until uh, not too long ago in fact and uh, John Addison's music gives that kind of sense of urgency to it and then the train pulls into the station and uh, the story begins but the interesting thing about the, the way the film's done is it's a very documentary looking film it's not done in a, in a stylized filmic kind of sense a lot of the, the shots, are, apart from like the, the people assembling to work out what they're going to do about this crisis, are location shots. There are a lot of location shots in this film around the British Museum, around central London in various places, on west on a deserted Westminster Bridge in, in various parts of London. So they've really kind of gone out of their way to make this sense of reality ground the, the essentially incredible story of the film in in that reality of 1950 London now you got to, just to give you a bit of a background on that 1950 in London there was still rationing after the war there were still a lot of places damaged by the bombings during World War Two. Britain just didn't have the infrastructure to rebuild as quickly as they would have liked to um, the the war had a large economic and personal cost to the British people, uh, which is one of the reasons why a year later they did the Festival of Britain as a way of kind of a national um, celebration and to spark up the country though, and to get that kind of passion and enthusiasm and um, goodwill back into the country. So there, you see a lot of places around in this film, uh, including the the climactic scene, the clim- yeah climactic scene. Um, in a bombed out church in Westminster, which is, hasn't had, they haven't had the infrastructure to rebuild this church yet, and it's kind of deserted, and there are birds roosting in the tops of the um, spires and things of the church. And that's where um, the professor takes sanctuary once he's tracked down. So there's a great, I mean, it's got that documentary thing about it. This movie's, what, 61 years old now. And it gives you a view of London at the time. I talked about this in a number of other films that I've talked about. Having that, when they do location in the past, it does give you a sense of the reality of the streets. It shows you what the cabs looked like in 1950 in London. They're fairly old even at that stage. The buses are old too. The the people's clothing is kind of made do. The rationing was still on. And um, and even clothing and, and food and, and essentials were rationed and things like that. So you've got that kind of slightly down at heel, but um, determination-filled milieu of London at the time. And I find that really interesting. Um, I could watch this film with the sound off just to see the location shots, to see the... Um, there's a scene in a, um, in a tube station 
where they actually filmed in the tube station and there are the real advertising posters along the walls of the tube station for um you know for Andrew's liver salts and and there are cigarette hall advertisements around. There's even if you look in one scene in the tube station, you'll see a, a momentary glimpse of a um, of a movie poster for a Danny Kaye movie starring Virginia Mayo in it as well. So yeah, it's just got this beautiful sense of reality about it. Uh, and as they basically they evacuate the centre of London as you would do in that circumstance. He's given them a week, so they've got time to evacuate the centre of London. And there are these great mass crowd scenes of people lining up to go onto trains and buses and trucks. And uh, there's a scene of, of train workers slamming um, bits of paper onto the windows of trains. And they're getting the old hospital, the old ambulance trains from that haven't been used since uh, they were bringing soldiers back from the from Dunkirk when the, when the sol- British soldiers fled the fled across the channel from Dunkirk they've got old ambulance trains that haven't been used since then they're suddenly bringing them back in just so they've got enough trains to evacuate the centre of London and at the time London was the largest city in the world so there's this great fantastic crowd thing where you know, little boys are crying because they need to have a wee and their mum told them to go before they left and uh, people are trying to get onto the train there's a, a great extra there are a lot of extras in the film and some of these extras have this great kind of you know lived in faces and they're showing the desperation of people trying to escape from this because the prime minister makes an announcement about it anyway i'm going to play a couple of um clips from the film first off to give that kind of vibe about it i've been gabbing on a little bit today and and being a bit passionate about this but i'll give you a, first off i'll give you the um announcement that uh andre morel makes about the threat that the professor has uh given the city of london all right Wellington has stolen a UR-12 bomb from the magazine at Wallingford. What? He's also written a personal letter to the Prime Minister. He says that unless it's publicly announced that Great Britain will stop making any more such weapons, he'll set it off and destroy what he calls the seat of government. But a UR-12 would wipe out half London. Exactly. If the Prime Minister doesn't make this announcement, your professor says that he'll explode the bomb at noon on Sunday next. Today's Monday. I can't believe it. How big are you, R12? About the size of a portable typewriter. Mm. In fact, it could quite easily slip it into a small suitcase. Yes. So that gives you a bit of a sense about how um, the characters react to this incredible crisis that's happening. Now, I've got another clip we're going to play from this one as well, just to... Um, push it a little further it's a bit of the prime minister's speech to the british people as he announces the fact that uh, london may end up being somewhat less than it was this is london here is the prime minister the right honorable arthur lytton to speak to you from 10 downing street it is my unhappy duty to have to tell you all of a grave emergency that has arisen during the past week i wish to preface my remarks however by assuring you that government plans to overcome this emergency are already in operation and require for their success only your calm and dutiful cooperation. Many of you will know that part of the government research station at Wallingford has been turned over to the development of new weapons. One of our leading scientists, a Professor Wellington, who has been working on this development, 
has removed one of these weapons from our control and has presented the government with a, uh, an ultimatum to this effect. That unless this country publicly renounces its intention to manufacture all such weapons, he will proceed with a plan of his own, which can only be described as diabolical. I have to tell you that all our efforts to discover the whereabouts of this unhappy, misguided man have so far been unsuccessful. However, the development of these weapons isn't our choice, but our necessity. And if Professor Willingdon's listening to me, I'd beg him to understand that were we to bow to his threat, we might well be exposing this country, indeed the, the whole of the free world, to a danger far greater than any that confronts us now. If the professor thinks that such a gesture on the part of this country would effectively appeal to men of goodwill over the heads of their own governments, he ignores the fact that such an appeal could be, and would be, withheld from millions, shut off as they are by rulers who control their newspapers, their radio, their, their every movement. Our recent history has taught us that to make ourselves weak, provides an irresistible temptation to the tyrant. Well, I'm now going to tell you the exact nature of the present danger. Using one of these new weapons, Professor Willingdon intends to destroy the seat of government at midday next Sunday. There's a touch of the Winston Churchills in that speech, of course, and um, and that's deli a deliberate policy on the part of the movie makers to do that. Now, the actor playing the Prime Minister is an interesting character too. His name's Ronald Adam. He was born in 1896, died in 1979. He was an RAF officer in World War I, and um, from what I understand, he was shot down near Villers Bretonneux in northern France in, um, on the 7th of April 1918, possibly by Manfred von Richthofen. Of course, he was wounded and captured, um, and later on, uh, he became an actor. So he, um, the actor himself who, who played the Prime Minister in this film kind of had a little bit of an idea about what war was really like, having been basically a dogfighter in World War One. That's just a little bit of an aside. Uh, I found that out and I found it quite interesting. But this film is, is a lovely little thriller, um, not as well known as it should be, but really great. Uh, I'm amazed by... I mentioned this, I think in regard to Japanese films in the 1950s as well. I like the fact that uh, during the and after the war, Britain had this incredible blossoming of creativity in the movies they were making. It really is an astonishing thing. Under all those hardships, under that threat of annihilation and, and slavery that there was during the war and in the post-war period, that the recovery from that, Britain made some really fucking wonderful films. And... Um, I, I really like the fact that the British Film Institute is is basically preserving these ones and also making them known and and making them part of, of the culturally available history of the country. And this film is definitely a part of that. So check it out if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it a long time ago, see if you can find it again. Shouldn't be terribly difficult to do if you look around. But um, it's a good, honest thriller. Uh, and it was made by people who really cared about what they were doing and were expert storytellers. So I'm going to take another break now and play some more music, and then we'll get into uh, the favourite of these two films for me, uh, Innocent Bystanders. I am a very stylish girl.
Stylish girl. Je ne sais pas si vous êtes comme moi, les copines, mais j'adore me maquiller les yeux. In case you didn't get it, that was a very stylish girl. Uh, it's a mashup track that I found somewhere and thought I would play for a change of tempo. On to Innocent Bystanders, 1972, directed by Peter Collinson, who directed the Italian job, as I said. By all reports, Peter Collinson was a fire director, but pretty much a bit of a martinet and somewhat of an asshole. So he, his career didn't go as long or as successfully as it might had had he modulated his style a little bit. But I'll give you um, a pricey on the film. I'll tell you uh, in detail who's in it, and we'll go from there. Um, I, I saw this film when it first came out, which shows, again, not for the first time how fucking old I am. But um, anyway, it's got Stanley Baker playing John Craig, um, a secret agent. Geraldine Chapman playing Miriam Lohman, a woman that he meets while um, tracking down the person he's tracking down. Donald Pleasance, Dana Andrews, Sue Lloyd, Darren Nisbet, who you might have seen in any number of 1960s and 1970s English TV shows. Vladek Shabal playing the, the subject of the search, uh, a character called Aaron Kaplan who's an agronomist. And a very interesting little character piece by Warren Mitchell, again, um, who was in uh, the Assassination Bureau Limited. But in this one, he's playing Omar, a um, Turkish hotel owner and businessman who was taught English by Australian soldiers during World War II. So he has a very kind of old school Australian spin on the English language. 
Um, I might play a little bit of Warren Mitchell's Omar character just to give you a bit of a flavour about it. But um, I'll do the synopsis of the film and then we'll uh, get into it. Basically, John Craig is uh, works for Looms, the character that Donald Pleasance plays, a very nasty little, you know, basically boss of intelligence operatives anyway. And um, his job is to find a character who's escaped from a Russian prison camp called Volochenka, a character called Kaplan, who's an agronomist who can very cheaply convert seawater into freshwater. And, of course, that becomes a very useful skill for him to have. The only problem is that the Russians don't mind that he escaped as long as he doesn't work as an agronomist. Now that he's um, being searched for by Western intelligence services, Kaplan is being chased by a group of people who escaped from the camp with him, but whom he betrayed. The the Jewish people um, who, who were in the camp with him, they've got a big grudge against him. They want to either kill him or get him back so that he can't be of use to the Western powers. You've got to remember this is 1972. Cold War still going on in spite of detente. And Kaplan is the target of their interests. Looms sends out Craig and another team consisting of uh, Joanna Benson, played by Sue Lloyd, and Andrew Royce, played by Darren Nesbitt, to track down Kaplan via his brother, um, who works in New York, works and lives in New York. Now, um, this... The brother is played by 30 Main, who you might remember was one of the vampire characters in The Fearless Vampire Killers. He was the main kind of charismatic older vampire character in that. Basically, the, the setup is that Craig is the decoy for the other interests. The Americans are interested in getting Kaplan themselves. The Russians, via the, the Jewish people that they are using as a cat's paw, are interested in getting Kaplan. Royce and Benson are interested in getting Kaplan before Craig does. Craig is a washed-up agent. Now, I'm going to play a bit of a sound bite of a conversation between Looms, played by Donald Pleasance, and Craig, played by Stanley Baker, just to give you a bit of a setup of these two characters. Was Royce beating you? Yes. Until I came in and saved you. Thinks I cheated him. Cheated? You mean he still believes there are rules? Oh, he is. And the, the gal, the Benson person, did she beat you? I mean, she's just as accurate as I am. But she's quicker. Yes, yeah, she beat me. Do you reckon you're pastor? They're both very good. Best I've got. I thought I was the best you had. You were, son, you were. You killed people nicely, tidily. But that last job spoiled you. Do you still dream about it? No. No? Surprised me, old man. They really hurt you, those chaps. And they ruined your love life. What they did to me would ruin anyone's love life. What are we going to do with you? You do nice paperwork. I got heaps of chaps doing that already. Experts. You can hardly just let me go, can you? No, I can't do that. Nobody leaves my department once they signed on. Perhaps I'm wrong about you, old man. Perhaps you've still got something. I'd better find out. How? One more job, make or break. Go on. If you pull this off, you'll be back where you belong. If I don't? 
You'll be here till you die. Sharpening pencils. You want to? What sort of a question is that? I haven't any choice. Nobody does, old man. Not here. Not even me. Looms is a fascinating character. He's a passive-aggressive asshole, very determined. He's one of the monstrous intelligence chiefs that uh, the author of the books this is based on seemed to specialise in. Now, uh, there were four novels featuring John Craig before there was ever this movie. Uh, the books uh, were written by James Mitchell, uh, an author of uh, spy thrills and also who did a lot of screenplays and things. He um, wrote them under the pseudonym of James Munro. There was The Man Who Sold Death in 1964, Die Rich, Die Happy in 1965, The Money That Money Can't Buy in 1967, and The Innocent Bystanders in 1969. I've got Die Rich, Die Happy and Innocent Bystanders here in paperback. And uh, John Craig, who works for Department K, is a feature in all of them. Now, uh, Mitchell, as Mitchell wrote the screenplay of this, and the credit says... um, yeah, screenplay by James Mitchell, based on a novel by James Munro. They don't actually tell you this is the same guy. But it, is, it stays quite close to the book, which is really, really good. Now, you might recognise the name of James Mitchell. He also did one of the seminal spy TV shows of all time. He was the, the engine of, of um, the 1970s. Actually, started in the late 1960s with a one-off called um, a Magnum for Schneider. Um, basically Callan, the TV series starring Edward Woodward, was written by James Mitchell. And uh, this John Craig character is the forerunner of Callan in a lot of ways. He works for a severe asshole of a department with, um, in British intelligence run by an incredible asshole, in this case, Looms. And uh, he is a complex character as, as the um the soundbite indicates on a previous job he had his genitals electrocuted severely as a part of that job now the previous novel in the series explains the situation of that and it is quite an ugly scene as i recall from when i read the novel but the interesting thing is that um john craig character is very much on the outer he's older than the other characters and he has lost his edge. That last job where he, he basically lost his virility spoiled him for the kind of work he did. Now, there's a scene where he's interrogated by American intelligence, which gives you another layer to the John Craig character. I'm not going to do a spoiler on that if you can find this. And it's only, unfortunately, available on VHS rips through the usual suspects at this stage. I'd love to see a DVD release of this film. I think it's worth it. And I think it's a nice, solid little spy thriller. Uh, If you go to IMDb and a place like that, people kind of take the easy route describing this film by describing it as a James Bond imitator, but I don't really think it is at all. I think that um, Mitchell took another way of, of looking at intelligence officers, which was kind of halfway between Ian Fleming and people like John Le Carré. He took a middle ground there, saying that these are um, very, very skilled, very brutal men working for utter asshole bureaucrats in a lot of ways. And, and that, of course, carries on into the Callan character that Edward Woodward portrayed in the um, TV series and it's very much a part of uh, John Craig in this film as well 
Now, Donald Pleasance has a lot of fun playing looms in this um, film. He uh, plays off against Dan Andrews, American intelligence chief, in the early scenes in the film by taking him to uh, his gentleman's club in London. And uh, the gentleman's club is mentioned in the books too, and it's also considered the worst gentleman's club in London. The food, the booze, the whole atmosphere is shit. But Looms is a member of this club, and he takes uh, the character played by Dana Andrews, whose name is, he said, looking it up. Uh, let me just see what I've got. Blake is the character's name to his club and feeds him horrible food before he cuts a deal about getting Kaplan's services and finding where Kaplan is. Now, um, Craig tracks Kaplan down to Turkey, to a place near Kutsk in Turkey, and uh, he has Benson and uh, Royce hot on his heels as he does this. And in the meantime, he's kidnapped the... um, the ward of Kaplan's brother, uh, the character played by Geraldine Chaplin, Miriam Lohman, who um, knows how to track Kaplan down. And so Craig kidnaps her. Uh, she's kind of the innocent bystander. She's the inexperienced person in this kind of nest of spies and uh, informers and agronomists and other people who are on the inside of the intelligence organisations. Now, Geraldine Chaplin's an interesting character. She played the gypsy in the recent Wolfman movie. She's somewhat older now, of course. But she um, played the old gypsy woman in, um, yeah, the, the Wolfman. Maliva, the character was called in the Wolfman. And, uh, of course, she's uh, the daughter of Charlie Chaplin. And uh, she attended the Royal Ballet Academy in London. She was discovered by David Lean. And she had then got a role in Dr. Zhivago. And uh, has had a very long career as an actor. But uh, in this one, she, she's not quite right for the role, to be really honest with you. But I think she does a good hand at the the innocent bystander of the title. And really makes the character work within the limitations of being miscast. Now, um, Sue Lloyd, who plays um, one of the intelligence agents who's also tracking down Kaplan, it's quite fun in this film. She has a couple of little bits of slapstick comedy in there. And Darren Nesbitt, a um, blonde English actor known for playing brutal assholes, plays a brutal asshole in uh, this film as well. So... He hasn't got too much to do there. He's, he's not very nuanced, if you know what I mean, in, in the way he acts. He's, he's, and there is a torture scene, which is slightly off screen, but is quite um, brutal. And the, the way the brutality is portrayed is in the interplay between Darren Nesbitt and Geraldine Chaplin. So it is... You know, this, film, this film's got a bit of guts to it as well. It's not a large-budget film... And it does have a very twangy 1970s soundtrack. There is a song sung during the film. And the worst thing they could have done is what they did. Uh, a singer called Hurricane Smith does the song in the middle of the film, which is not a, a particularly good song. And Hurricane Smith, known for a, uh, a, he's kind of one-hit wonder kind of singer with a very bad voice, uh, who did a song called Babe, What Would You Say? in the 1960s, and he, he does it in here too, and I kind of think it's it's a shit song, but I kind of like it because it's a part of my memory of the movie, 
and it kind of works in there. Now, Vladik Shabal, character actor, very well-known, long-term. Uh, you might remember he played Kronstein in From Russia with Love, one of the best of the early James Bond films. You'll know the guy's face. He later on, in his later life before his unfortunate death, became an acting teacher in Australia as well. I know he did a number of... Um, courses teaching Australian actors stagecraft and, and screencraft and things like that so he when his career kind of faded a little bit he did pass on his knowledge and he's very well regarded because of that and uh, the action sequences in this film are quite good and they are as I said based in the book now why do I like this film particularly I like I like um, the Craig character and I like the way Stanker plays him very underestimated actor Stanley Baker. I mean, he did do a lot of action roles in the 50s and early 60s. He was in Zulu. He was, uh, did Hell Drivers that I mentioned a few podcasts ago. But I also think he's a very underestimated actor in the same way that when you see a, a, a character role done by Bruce Willis and when he's not playing a Bruce Willis character, he's got that same thing of being able to play complexity. But for some reason it isn't noticed when he does that, which is a, a total shame. But in this one, particularly look at the torture scenes and a few of the other little bits of uh, interplay between various characters in this film. And you can see that Stanley Baker is giving full value in this film and is really bringing an A-game to what's basically a B-action film in a sense. And he does, um, he does portray the arc of, of Craig's redemption because... Um, the betrayal of Craig by Looms is what triggers Craig to bring back his A-game, to really come back to the best, his best self and bring his experience and knowledge to play to ultimately um, succeed in getting Kaplan and getting Kaplan's um, to the people who ultimately um, use his services. So it's an interesting one to watch for the acting as much as for the action. It's not a, a, a terrific film, but it is you know, a good actioner in, in in the purest sense of the form. Now I'm now going to play you a little bit of Warren Mitchell's character Omar, who assists Craig in uh, taking Kaplan from Turkey to Cyprus, because Craig, in the history of the of the novels, has a long history of smuggling. Um, he, he was a smuggler in a sense, apart from a secret agent. Before he had a career as a secret agent, he was a high-class smuggler and had a lot of friends in Cyprus. So I'll just play a little bit of uh, Warren Mitchell playing the broad Australian-accented Omar. What I can do for you, sport? You speak English? Oh, bloody oath. <laughs> She'll be apples. Bloody beaut shield, ain't it? No, I was, sir. Uh... Working for the Aussies in a war, ain't it? Up North Africa, was up uh, Benghazi, that was up uh, Tobruk, you know. Was, you know, Jerry Kaput. <laughs> no, I, I learned me bloody beauty English, the Aussies there. You septic? Am I what? Septic tank, a yank. No, I'm English. Oh, pummy boss, eh? You have any English people around here? No, I've, for today, I ain't seen a pummy boss here for 20 years. What I can do for you, sport? Oh, we'd like a room. Oh, I've got a bloody youth room, and I. <laughs> you bloody good. Want to come through here? This film, um, one of the things I like about it is that Mitchell brings his, his normal 
spin on the intelligence services to it. It really is a fact that these are, are nasty men doing a nasty job in a nasty business. And that very much comes to play even at the end of the film where uh, Craig is leaving Cyprus. There's a scene between him, him and Geraldine Chapman, uh, the Loman character, which is very telling. And actually, he does the noble thing, but in doing so, he does expand on the nature of the kind of work that he does and who he is, which is quite um, a, a piece of the film that really didn't need to be there. If it had been an American film, perhaps they would have played it a different way. But that's about all there is to say about Innocent Bystanders. Check it out. It's a solid film. Unfortunately, there isn't a really great copy of it around. I would love to see it in a cinema again. I'd love to have it on DVD, and I would pay money for it on DVD as well, which is perhaps a, a better indication of how much uh, regard I hold the film in. But uh, I'm going to take another break now, and then we'll get into the feedback. Hey, this is Richard in Wichita. just wanted to call and say that I'm loving the podcast as always. Um, about halfway through episode 65, really loving the music uh, that you've selected in this particular episode, uh, as I've loved all of the music episodes you've done in the past. Um, it just kind of inspired me just to, to say that I'm loving the show. You know, I'm kind of playing a bit of catch-up, um, as I think I indicated earlier. December is a month where I go full-blown Christmas. I love Christmas. I know, you know you're not a a, a fan, and, and that's very cool. Um, but, uh, you know, I've survived, uh, did not get myself into a sugar-induced coma, and so now I'm kind of getting back on track and looking back at what I've watched in the last year and kind of what I want to accomplish movie-watching-wise in 2011. thought I'd share a few things with you real quick. I didn't think I would see as many movies this year as I did last, and I ended up seeing a few more, if that was even possible. Um, looks like I'm going to end up 2010, uh, I'm recording this on the 30th of December, looks like I'm going to end up having watched 333 movies this year. I know, that's insane. But considering that I, I have the luxury of being able to watch during the day when I work, I work on a computer, and there are some days I can get three or four movies out if they're short movies in a given day, um, depending on, of course, on my workload and depending on what I'm having to concentrate on. Uh, I do work from home, which is a great luxury, and I work on the computer. So um, with all that said, yeah, it's still a lot of movies, I know. Uh, but, you know, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I've never watched as many movies as I have the last two or three years, and, and I'm really loving discovering all these great films that I have, uh, or rediscovered films that I had forgotten about, courtesy of all the different podcasts I listen to. Um, with all that said... I can pretty confidently say that I will not watch as many movies in 2011 because there are uh, a couple of different things I want to accomplish in the next year, um, one of which is kind of working my way through uh, several different television series. Uh, for example, Boris Karloff's Thriller was a Christmas gift. Uh, I've only seen random episodes of that. Uh, I've loved what I've seen, so I look forward to watching that in the next year. Making my way through the old Twilight Zone and Outer Limits series, uh, the Invader series, um, the Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah, you can kind of see a theme going on here. I've just there's some different television shows that I want to revisit or visit for the first time in the upcoming year. But I do have some ideas for movies that I plan on viewing. Um, 
I, I really want to make my way through the Clint Eastwood films that I have. Also, got some Akira Kurosawa that I want to uh, revisit and uh, visit for the first time, depending on the film. So, um, as well as my usual dose of sci-fi, horror, action genre that definitely fits into the B movie cast. Uh, shout out to Vince Rotolo over there, Vince and Nick. Um, with all that said. Uh, you know, I'm going to continue to crank out the podcasts, uh, keep my family of podcasts that I've got, uh, not going to be expanding them, not going to be cutting them back in the next year. Uh, you're definitely right there. And uh, with that, I wish you a happy new year in 2011. I'll look forward to continue to listen to the show, look forward to getting some great movie suggestions from you in the upcoming year. With that, sir, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Richard, and good luck with the new stuff in the new year, too. Uh, I've got some TV series I should be getting through, but what I personally hope for 2011 is that I see movies I haven't seen before. Older films, new films, I don't care which, but just films that kind of excite that love of cinema that I've got and and kind of keep that fire burning in me. It's something that I noticed. um, I recently did a top eight old films that I'd seen for the first time in 2010 for uh, our good friend Rupert over at Rupert Pupkin Speaks. If you just Google Rupert Pupkin Speaks, you'll find his website, and I've put in the top eight films uh, that I saw for the first time in 2010. Some of were on the podcast, but most of them weren't. Uh, One of them was something I did on the radio with uh, ABC Darwin, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're films that I haven't talked about on the podcast. doesn't mean I'm not going to, potentially, in the future. But, uh, and, and a lot of them were French films, too. Uh, it's like I've tapped out the good stuff for um, English-language films. I, I'm sure that I haven't, but it feels a little bit like that. And I'm now kind of expanding into non-English-language films, and there's such a rich vein of, of French cinema that I haven't tapped yet. So I want to do a lot more of that kind of thing in, in the next year, and I undoubtedly will. Uh, I've got another uh, voicemail, and I'll just play that one now. Hey, Terry, this is uh, Vince from the B Movie Cast, just sitting there relaxing, having a Belgian beer, and um, thought I'd catch up, <laughs> uh, give you a little feedback on your podcast and uh, this, this is going to cover a little bit of ground, but uh, back on 62, I know you talked about actually a couple of films I have seen and uh, really liked. Uh, one of them was Bullet, starring Steve McQueen, one of my favorite actors. And I remember seeing that movie in 68. I think I was about 17 back then. And uh, that back then we only had those big one-screen theaters with the cool balconies and all that. Anyway, a friend of mine was walking around downtown, and uh, we noticed we walked by the theater, saw the posters and lobby cards and all that stuff for Bullet, and uh, it was the last movie. And back then, after the last movie played a while, they pretty much shut down the concession stand and the ticket booth, and you could just walk in and plop down. So we went and sat down, and right when we sat down, uh, it's right when the chase uh, scene started that had such an impact on us, you know, where we were the next night. We went back to see it again, but I uh, really loved that movie. I always remember that little bit about it, uh, Danger Diabolic. I love all of Bava's stuff. I mean, especially, you know, these different Euro spy films. I haven't seen a lot of them, but I really like them. The fashion, the music, and all that stuff. Really cool movies. Uh on Paleo Cinema 63, you talked about two movies I've never seen, uh, Thunder Road with Robert Mitchum. I really love Robert Mitchum. He's a really good actor, one of my favorites. 
uh, the president's analysis. I saw bits and pieces of that. Uh, James Coburn, another one of my favorite actors. I'll have to put that on my list, too. Um, and Godfrey Cambridge, I believe, was a black comedian back in the day there. Um, 64, Paleo Cinema 64, you talked about a couple more movies I haven't seen, Hell Drivers. Yeah, I see Stanley, I mean, uh, Herbert Long was in that from the Pink Panther movies. I always liked him and them. He's pretty cool. And Patrick McGowan, of all people, I believe that's the guy that was in Secret Agent, isn't it, in The Prisoner? Uh, also, The Kremlin Letter, yeah, that's another one I never saw, but uh, directed by John Huston. You can't go too wrong there, Patrick O'Neill. Patrick O'Neill and Richard Boone is a really cool actor. Uh, I've been watching some Paladins, uh, one of his westerns here I have on, on DVD. And also, he was in the movie we covered on the B-Movie cast here called The Last Dinosaur. If you haven't saw it, check it out. I think you'll like it. It's uh, it's definitely worth a watch. It's a pretty good laugh. Really been enjoying the um, podcast 65 the groovy movie music and other oddities that was real great i listened at work so that's real fun and it was really funny listening about the, your little kitten there and we were podcasting the other night and our cat jumped up on the thing and was rubbing on mary's microphone so we know all about the the kitten problems and uh, let's see paleo cinema 66 couple more movies i haven't seen the assassination bureau i mean uh, oliver reed great actor we've done you know uh, movies with him in them diana rigg from uh, the avengers <clears throat> one of my favorite uh girls from the avengers uh so that was really cool and also the other movie you talked about on that one i can't remember was a goodbye paradise never saw that doesn't, doesn't have a clue about that so uh you know, it's neat that when I hear one of your podcasts and I've actually seen movies <laughs> that's on it, I actually get excited. But they're going on the list, you know. I can always go back to your site, but I can't even keep up with the movies, um, you know, <laughs> that we need to watch for the podcast and stuff. And real quick before I finish, um, just some movies I've seen recently, and we've done a lot of them. But um, Die, I wondered if you've seen any of these. Uh, Die Screaming Marianne with Susan George from 1970 is pretty cool. Also, um, we did a Bird Eye Gordon movie from 57, The Cyclops. I don't know if you're in, the, in the, any of those movies. Uh, the Green Slime from 50, uh, 68. Tales from the Rat Fink is a documentary about Big Daddy Ed Roth, which is, uh, if you don't know about this guy, was, he's real cool. He used to be um, you know, a car designer and stuff and developed the, um, the Rat Fink character. Look him up on the net if you, you might not know of him You know, being down there in... Uh, Australia and all. Also been watching uh, Route 66 TV show. We're fortunate enough. This is from 1966. We're fortunate enough here to have Netflix streaming so you can actually just, you know, go on the TV and pick a movie and watch it. It's really slick. Uh, also watched American Scary from 2006. It's a documentary about all the horror hosts in, uh, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, mainly 60s, I guess, and 70s, um, just about all the cities of the barrack had horror hosts. I don't know if you had them in Australia. It'd be kind of interesting to hear about if you did or not. And then lastly, we just uh, I just saw Macabre from 1958, one of William Castle's movie. Actually, a pretty decent movie. So just like to hear your thoughts on them and uh, keep the great shows coming. We're out here listening. Ciao. Thanks for that, Vince. Um, yeah, uh, I'll give you guys uh, a shout out to B Movie Cast anytime. You always got interesting stuff 
there and uh, you're more in the centre of things than I am. Um, horror movie hosts, yeah, we have one. We had a guy in Sydney called Deadly Earnest. Now, I've spoken about Deadly Earnest once a long time ago in the podcast. He did look a lot like Michael Caine in the Ipcrest file if Michael Caine in the Ipcrest file was a zombie. Now, there was a Deadly Earnest in Melbourne who didn't look anywhere near as cool. I've seen a couple of pictures of him. But he, he didn't have that kind of mid-60s hipster look that the one in Sydney had. And I believe there was another one in Brisbane too. So it shows no imagination in the naming of these horror hosts. And when I was a kid, uh, for Saturday nights, Channel 10, they used to have Deadly Earnest awful movies on there. And they did things like um, It Came From Beneath the Sea and all those kind of things. I think they did Zombies of Moritale there as well, which is where I first saw that. And a bunch of other things. So, yeah, I've got a history with those films and the kind of things that you guys do on the podcast. So, definitely something I'm, I'm tapped into there. Uh, yeah, the Netflix thing, unfortunately, I, I don't have access to that, which is a shame. I mean, yeah, roll on the global conspiracy to have one government in one country. I'm, I'm more than happy for that because it's going to give me access to a lot more shit. But um, thank you very much for your support on there. Uh, I'm glad that you and Mary are sympathetic about the cat problem. And by the way, I should tell you, it was fantastic to hear Mary on your podcast as well. Really enjoyed that. And give her a shout out for me. Tell her that I said she sounds great on the on the podcast. And the interplay between you guys really does enhance the job. Of course, you, your co-hosts as well, Nick and the other Nick and a bunch of other people on there. It's all really good. And I'm looking in this year to get a couple of people and I'm going to try to get a guest host for the next podcast if we can get together um, on it. Well, I think we've selected movies. It's just a matter of finding a mutually suitable time. Me getting the guest host, I've got in mind a copy of one of the two movies and then we'll uh, Skype it up and and get something happening along those lines. We'll do a few test runs and, and that sort of thing. But thank you very much for your, your continuing support. I think uh, you're definitely on the same wavelength as I am as far as movies are concerned. I hear about movies from your podcast. You hear about them from mine. Um, it's, it's a wonderful circle jerk of movie buffs we've got here. If <laughs> you'll excuse that. Um, yeah, anyway, um, I did get also uh, some comments on the Fachi book Facebook to those who aren't Italians uh, from our old mate Zom now I'm just going to bring that up on my screen here uh, he did have a, a couple of things to say and by the way Zom uh, congratulations on the new dog he's got a nice female chocolate Labrador I believe who is cuter than Chinese babies but, um, yeah, Tom sent me a, a couple of little comments here. He wrote, excellent job as always. I was listening this morning about 3.30 a.m. as I was taking some old clothes to the Goodwill. My new puppy likes the show so much she didn't make a peep. She loves Telly Savalas. And he wrote another companion piece that I was suggesting for Gregory Peck thing. Uh, for the Tuesday World thing, he said, another companion piece for I Walked Along with Peck and Tuesday World will be Soldier in the Rain with World Steve McLean and Jackie Gleason. I haven't seen Soldier in the Rain since Jesus was playing Cowboys. So I'm going to have to add that to my list. I've got a notebook here, a Kenny from South Park notebook that I'm keeping all of my records in now. And as I speak, I'm going to add Soldier in the Rain in the back of the notebook where the movies I've got to see are. Just give me a moment. I'm going to write it down right now. Soldier in the Rain. There we go. Adding it to the book. 
So thank you for that, Zom. Uh, I'm glad the new dog is integrating into your household as well as Jill the cat is interacting well with Jack. Uh, Jack's got this thing now. He just basically puts up with it, plays around a little bit. When he's over it, he either walks away or taps her on the head with his paw and then she goes away. So, yeah, um, it's like my friend H the Vet said, they work out their own relationships and we really love having a second cat in there. It just, um, it's really nice. Uh, I think having a pet really does enhance a household. Anyway, that's about it for this time around. Thank everyone for your support and for listening. As I said, 2011, I'm going to be doing some new things here. I'm going to get a few co-hosts in. It may not be every fortnight, but um, when I can get my disorganised ass organised enough to, to line people up. And then you're going to be Australian voices. Realistically, Skype doesn't work too well over international distances, which is a real, real shame. But um, I'm going to get a, a few local people that you might not have heard before. Um, I've got a couple of people I'm going to tap on the shoulder for this. But anyway... Enjoy your movie watching. Give me some feedback to the usual things. Uh, even if it's just an email saying, hi, I'm enjoying it, drop an email to kultguru at gmail.com. like to hear from you. I know I'm getting a lot of people in China at the moment listening to the podcast and across Europe and, uh, and other places in Asia as well and uh, other places in North America apart from the usual suspects. Drop an email Drop a voicemail if you like. Really um, anxious to hear from people and I do appreciate the feedback. I want to build a network here with other podcasts and other podcasters, but also with an audience. So take it easy. If you're in a cold place, stay warm. If you're down here in the Southern Hemisphere, keep your liquids up and I'll be back in a fortnight. Take care, guys.